Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, June 29th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The era of Wagovi might be short-lived, as new medicines from Eli Lilly led to dramatic weight loss in clinical trials. STAT's Elaine Chen joins us to explain. Back in 2021, Novavax was a COVID vaccine underdog poised to compete and thrive against much larger competitors. But then, a lot went wrong. Today, Novavax has a new CEO promising change. John Jacobs joins us to discuss his plans. All of that after a word from our sponsor. What does operational inefficiency look like in clinical trials? For sponsors, it means lagging patient recruitment and no way to see enrollment barriers. At research sites, it looks like manual paperwork jamming the enrollment process. One study team's mission is to accelerate the development of new and life-saving therapies by bringing clinical workflows online. This enables sites, sponsors, and stakeholders to work together on a common cloud-based platform, Study Team. The result, efficient workflows, increased enrollment, visibility into enrollment barriers, and one clear path to faster therapeutic development. Learn more at onestudyteam.com slash stat. That's O-N-E studyteam.com slash stat. Since the advent of Novo Nordisk's obesity drug Wegovi, we've all been living through this national conversation around just what it means, medically, financially, and societally even, to have a weekly injection that leads to 15% weight loss. Meanwhile, Novo's rival, Eli Lilly, was apparently cooking up a bunch of Wegovi-beating medicines that promise more dramatic weight loss, more convenient dosing, and multi-billion dollar sales in the future. That all came to light this past week at the American Diabetes Association Conference in San Diego. Stats Elaine Chen was on the ground reporting. She joins us now to talk about it. Elaine, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me back. So in, in broad terms, before we get into some of the details of the data, Novo had been the dominant force in this nascent market for next generation obesity drugs that we talk about so much. How did that narrative start to change at ADA? Yeah, so Novo had essentially first mover advantage in this market. Their drug, Wagovi, was the first of these new obesity drugs to get approval. Um, But at ADA, Lilly released a bunch of new data on several different obesity products, and that really wowed people. So they had data on a small molecule pill and also an injectable that appears to be potentially the most effective obesity drug yet. So coming out of ADA, Lilly looks to be a lot more competitive and perhaps is starting to gain an edge over Novo Nordisk. So you mentioned that sort of next generation injectable drug that delivered the most weight loss we've seen yet in trials. That's something that is referred to as triple G. Maybe explain what that is, why it's so important. And then, you know, it seemed like that weight loss came with some potential safety concerns. What does the profile look like? Yeah. So the, that injectable, uh, Retitrutide. It's called the triple G drug because it targets or mimics the effects of three hormones, GLP-1, GIP, and glucagon. So that's more hormones than, you know, what we have already available with our existing drugs. So Ozempic and Wagovi target just GLP-1. Munjaro, which is also from Lilly, targets GLP-1 and GIP. So retitrutide further adds on with glucagon. Um, and the exciting aspect of retitrutide was 
the, the data that was presented showed 24% weight loss in a 48-week phase two trial, which is the most we've seen with any obesity drug so far. So that was what was really exciting for a lot of the attendees. Um, but there were also side effects. Uh, there was kind of the typical GI side effects that we see with this class of medications. There was also uh, cases of arrhythmia with patients taking the drug and the frequency of arrhythmia kind of increased with higher doses of the drug. Um, there was also one case of pancreatitis. Um, so I think uh, researchers will have to collect a lot more data on safety, especially as the drug advances to larger phase three trials. So the other big development uh, in weight loss is, is the, uh, I guess, is a development of oral formulations, uh, pills to treat uh, weight loss and obesity. Uh, Elaine, what, what did we see at ADA in that part of the story? Yeah, so Lily also had data on a small molecule, GLP-1, that it's working on. Um, that one showed about 15% weight loss in a phase two trial, which is around the same efficacy that we see with Novo's Wigovi. Um, and uh, Novo also had data on an oral drug, the kind of oral version of Wagovi, and that was also about 15% weight loss. The difference between Lily and Novo's oral products is Lily's is a small molecule, whereas Novo's is an oral peptide. And the expectation is oral peptide drugs will be a lot more difficult to manufacture. They would be more difficult and costly to manufacture and also a little bit more inconvenient for patients to take because for oral peptides, you have to take them on an empty stomach before you have food for a certain amount of time, whereas for small molecules, you don't have any of those restrictions. So um, uh, I think a lot of doctors and analysts see a lot more promise with Lily's small molecule than they see with uh, Novo's oral peptide. So I'm curious about the future, because we we often extrapolate from these are like phase two data. And so, you know, for, for Wall Street analysts, gaming out years in the future, billions of dollars. So the narrative coming out of ADA was like, Lily ran the table, Lily owns this now. But it is important to note that these drugs still have to, one, prove themselves in larger studies. And even if we were to take that for granted, which would probably be unwise, those studies are long. And then you have to apply for FDA approval. And like this is a lengthy process. So I'm curious, coming out of ADA... What do people think the actual like market dynamics of obesity of these new obesity drugs will be in the years to come, and and how many years will it be before we see um, the kind of competition that is sort of I don't know heralded by these data? Yeah, you're right. So um, even though Lilly has all this all these new exciting data that they've they've presented, um, it's all mostly in phase two trials. So they still need to do phase three trials, which can take. Um, a lot of time and there could also be, you know, new safety signals that come up in these larger phase three trials. So it's probably going to be some years away before, uh, you know, we start to see greater competition on the market. So for now, Novo's products um, are still the most widely known and um, perhaps will still be very widely used. Um, another thing that Novo has is just a lot of extensive data on safety and efficacy. Like the first semaglutide product, Ozempic, was approved in 2017. So Novo just has a bunch of data. Um, so perhaps doctors and patients would feel more comfortable with, you know, the the what we know about the safety of semaglutide. Um, 
there's also more data on long-term benefits with semaglutide. We know that it, um, trials have shown that it cuts cardiovascular risks in people with diabetes, and they have a cardiovascular outcomes trial for people with obesity reading out pretty soon this year. And if that's positive, then that could really um, increase confidence in people's use of semaglutide and also pair coverage of semaglutide. Yeah, tell us some more about that trial. I mean, we've talked about it a few times on the podcast, but just like it seems really important. I mean, not just for Novo, but for the whole class. I mean, how how do you look at it based on conversations you've had with experts and, and where are the expectations kind of shaping up there? Yeah, so that trial, uh, it's called Select. We'll be reading out, we're expecting um, soon this year. And it's going to be, if positive, it would be the first uh, trial showing that an obesity drug does lead to positive cardiovascular outcomes for people with obesity. So it's a really big deal. Um, I think, you know, uh, there's a notion um, among the public and maybe also insurers, you know, questioning like how beneficial really are these obesity drugs? Is it just creating weight loss? But if this trial is positive, that kind of indicates that these drugs not only just help with weight loss, but have all these downstream benefits helping with, you know, reducing heart attack and stroke risk. Um, and at least from Novo's perspective, they say it's going to be a big deal. Um, I talked with uh, one of the executives at Novo about Select, and he said it was it could have the potential to be, quote, a game changer or a landmark trial and really bring about a paradigm shift in obesity medicine. So, um, you know, obviously that's coming from them. But I think there is a general consensus across the whole industry of obesity drug makers that um you know, this could be a really important trial. So, Elaine, one of the one of the other interesting debates that came out of the ADA conference seemed to be the impact that these obesity medicines may have on the development of drugs to treat fatty liver disease. Uh, you know, both kind of maybe the early stage fatty liver disease, and then uh, you know more severe forms of it called NASH. Um, tell us a little bit about that debate and what impact do you think that these drugs will have on you know on companies that are developing drugs solely for NASH. I mean, we saw at least this week some of those stocks of those drugs, uh, of those drug makers go down. I think that, uh, so So for a while, the, the drug makers making GLP-1 drugs have been trying to see if they could be helpful with um, fatty liver disease or NASH. Um, Novo has uh, conducted trials testing semaglutide in NASH. They have... Uh, so far not yet shown to improve um, liver scarring or fibrosis. So there, I think there have been some questions on how useful these GLP-1-based drugs could be in NASH. But um, the data that Lily showed on the triple G drug showed uh, there was a sub-analysis that showed it might actually uh, you know, have more potential to help with fatty liver disease. It showed that it cut liver fat in, in several people uh, much by a greater magnitude than we've seen with other GLP-1-based drugs. And kind of we have preclinical data suggesting that the action of targeting glucagon may be helpful for fibrosis. So um, I think uh, I think there's more and more evidence uh, behind targeting glucagon specifically as a helpful mechanism for fatty liver disease. And that's something that some other drug makers have, you know, uh, started to test as well. Merck and uh, Boeinger both have GLP-1 glucagon dual uh, agonist drugs that they're going to be testing, that they're testing in, in NASH. One aspect of the whole 
uh, newfangled obesity drug story is there had seemed to be a kind of dark horse in the form of Pfizer, um, which is a very large company that is famously pretty good at developing medicines. And they had uh, a few oral treatments in the pipeline. And I know at least in, in terms of Wall Street speculation, the presence of Pfizer always seemed like some kind of like looming thing for the future of this market. But around ADA, we got news that Pfizer's process is apparently getting a little more complicated in this field than, than maybe was initially thought. Can you tell us about what happened there and, and, and what it might portend for this competition? Yeah. So during um, ADA, there were Pfizer announced that it would discontinue trials of one of the small molecule um, pills that it was developing. It's a it's a once daily pill, and instead it's going to uh, focus efforts on a twice daily pill. So obviously, taking a drug twice a day would be more inconvenient than taking it once a day. Um, so it is some people see it as kind of setting back Pfizer in this in this race to develop oral products for obesity. So it seems like, uh, especially compared with Lily, Pfizer is falling behind, and and Lily is really emerging as uh, getting ahead in especially in the race to develop oral products. So, you know, one of the questions that we hear a lot from people following this space, and it's people who are following this space who don't usually follow drug development to this degree, um, is, you know, are there any long-term safety signals that could pop up when you have drugs that perhaps millions of people will take? And, you know, right now we understand you have to keep taking them in order to keep weight down, although the companies, you know, sort of bristle at the fact that we even point that out because they say you wouldn't make that argument for a blood pressure medicine, for example. Um, but regardless, did any signals or concerns pop up at the meeting about any of these medicines in this class, uh, in addition to the ones that you already mentioned with Triple G? Yeah, so um, I that that's a continuous question about what are gonna what the long term effects and potential um, safety concerns with these drugs are. Um, as I mentioned, Novo does have years and years of data on semaglutide, which kind of probably gives it an advantage. Um, and that's something that Lilly will still need to collect data on. So all these new drugs that appear very exciting, like the triple G drug and also its small molecule pill, they still uh, need more data collected on their long term safety. Um, with the small molecules, uh, especially there, you know, because they're so the molecules are so small, um, they could uh, theoretically get into various areas of the body and and potentially um, you know cause side effects that we don't see with injectables. So that's something that experts have noted. Uh, we should keep an eye out. So I was curious for how, what the actual like vibe of the conference was. ADA is not like ASCO or some some of the like. I don't know, glitzy conferences that often are, are host to like huge data sets and, and lots of journalistic coverage. But in this case, it seemed like that that wasn't true. This was like the eyes of the drug development world and the world beyond it because of the popularity of these medicines were very much on ADA. What was it like in in the room, in the in the presentation halls among all these physicians seeing these very large numbers followed by percentage signs when it comes to weight loss for these new medicines? Yeah, people were really excited uh, in all the big, uh, you know, symposiums or presentations that I was at, especially for like Lily's triple G drug. It was at the end of the day, end of the conference, but still there were, you know, people that attended and there was a lot of applause when the um, weight loss numbers first showed up on the screen. So um, 
there's been a lot of excitement among the doctors and researchers who attended. And um, I think ADA is becoming a lot more newsy and, um, you know, a focus given all the new obesity drugs that we have now. Elaine, great coverage this week. And uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It was a favorite story of journalists during the pandemic. Novavax, a company on the brink of bankruptcy and forced to lay off a significant proportion of its workforce, was suddenly among the frontrunners in the biggest vaccine race the world had ever seen. And while Novavax's work during the pandemic turned its fortunes around, driving its market value at one point in early 2021 to its highest $25 billion, it couldn't go fast enough to keep up with the mRNA powerhouses at Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech. While the company's COVID vaccine did receive emergency use authorization, it's not widely used in the U.S., and Novavax didn't join Pfizer and Moderna in making updated bivalent booster shots. In late February of this year, Novavax warned its investors that there is a substantial doubt about its ability to continue operating for the next year, given its cash position, uncertainties over 2023 revenue, funding from the U.S. government, and pending arbitration with the Global Vaccines Alliance, Gavi. A little more than a month before that, Novavax had brought in a new CEO, John Jacobs. The company is now still in the race to develop updated COVID boosters for this fall, as well as a vaccine for flu. And John joins us now to talk about the path ahead for Novavax. John, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. So, John, tell us about your decision to join and lead Novavax. You know, what had you been doing? Who called you about the job? And, and what was your initial reaction? Boy, you know, I've been in the industry 30 years. And through those 30 years, I was really, in, if you can name a role in commercial or a role that supports it or a role in the development of a medicine and the launching of that medicine into the commercial marketplace, I've done it or led it over 30 years and learned a lot along the way. And I was CEO of a company called Harmony Biosciences before. Took that company public, launched its first drug and brought it into the top tier of performance as a mid cap. And I was looking for something new. And, you know, Novavax was making this unique transition from a long time 35 year biotech company to a commercial organization for the first time. And it, it had a technology platform that was one of the best in the world for vaccines, if not the best. I truly believe that. And it's a company that should succeed. Yet, to your point on the opening, it was struggling financially and having some difficulty getting that vaccine out the door in a timely manner. I love a challenge. This fits my background 100%. It was exactly what I was looking for next in my career. And I couldn't have been more excited to join the company at this time. So you mentioned a few of the challenges that you saw for Novavax. Maybe lay out what, what they are as you see them right now and then your plan to overcome them. You know, COVID is, was a difficult target to hit. It was a moving target. In order for the company to get there in time, they had to put together a complex manufacturing infrastructure overnight. They struggled to get that together into a symphony in time to hit the moving target of COVID. But yet, experienced still tremendous success when you take a look at what they achieved to $2 billion in sales. Unfortunately, they came later than the other companies at that time. So what was I coming into? A company that had built this large infrastructure that was currently spending more than they were pulling in, in revenues, with $2.5 billion in current liabilities, and were seen as falling behind the competition. So look, I came in with eyes wide open. That's not an easy challenge, but it's certainly an exciting one. And I know it can be overcome. 
So what we had to do now is shape the company to match the size of the market opportunity. So in my first three months, I worked with the management team and our board of directors to cut our expenses 50%. So if you can imagine a global corporation on three continents with 2,600 employees and cutting expenses 50% and doing so without hurting your capabilities while maintaining your ability to get the vaccine out the door to the appropriate scale and doing that. But we did that in almost a record time together. We did it well. That included a 25% headcount reduction of our company. I restructured the management team. We reduced over $650 million of current liability for this organization, helping to strengthen our balance sheet. And right now, according to our base plan, we have the cash runway to get us in a healthy way through the fall and give us a great shot to launch our vaccine. Other changes that we made, we're changing the way we work with FDA, changing the way we work internally, being more open and transparent than ever before with FDA on what we can and cannot do. And so by telling health authorities what we were not able to do, that we couldn't move as fast as an mRNA in certain areas, they were able to flex with us more readily to help put together a better orchestrated effort across the different manufacturers for this fall. You saw that come true in the VERPAC meeting that was recently held and in FDA, EMA, and WHO guidance where everyone aligned on XBB15 and we've made that two commercial scale months in advance at risk. So we're ready for this fall. I wanted to kind of dig in on, on the example you just cited of needing to cut expenses for the financial health of the company and the sake of its longevity, but also you need to keep delivering new vaccines. As you mentioned, you've been producing them um, basically at risk. How do you strike that balance? Like entering this situation, seeing the the financial realities of Novavax, but understanding Novavax's role and the obligations you have to produce this vaccine, how do you cut while preserving the thing you're doing really well and not you know imperil the business going forward in the sake of, of short-term financial reality? You know, you have to start by looking at capabilities. What capabilities were needed? And that's exactly where I started with the management team and the board of directors. Because if you just start with an expense base, to your point, you're, you, it's like a surgeon cutting with a blindfold on. And that's the last thing we want, right? So you really need to start by saying, what capabilities do we need as a company to ensure that we can, A, bring our vaccine forward this fall? You cannot cut your way to success. We need to generate revenue to succeed. So that was number one on those capabilities. Number two, layer two, is make sure we retain enough capability. So as we stabilize the company and get to financial health toward the end of this year, much stronger financial position, which is our goal by the end of this year into next year, that we can start to bring forward our portfolio of assets, that we can start to make the appropriate investments and the, the what's next beyond an updated new vaccinated. Once we highlighted that, then you could work on scaling up or down those key capabilities to the point where we could hit our financial targets. Last but not least, we started with a target on ratios. You, know, you want certain operating profit ratios to put us into the norms for companies that we benchmark ourselves against by 2024. So we had those targets financially organized. We made sure we ring-fenced the key capabilities and then we scaled within those parameters to achieve our targets and we did so successfully. So do you anticipate Novavax becoming a bigger vaccine player, both in COVID and other diseases uh, here in the U.S.? And if so, like, how big do you think you can be? I don't like to give that type of 
guidance, but I'd say much bigger than we are now, if that's fair. Uh, the, and the reason why I say that is, look, we have such a remarkable technology platform. I think the sky's the limit for the company. But these things do take some time to materialize. And the company's sitting on multiple early stage vaccine programs, by the way, and several important late stage programs. And we just released phase two data, positive phase two data results on three different vaccines. First and foremost, our combination COVID flu vaccine, our standalone flu and a high dose COVID vaccine, all with remarkable results. We showed, and again, this is not yet phase three, it's not a head-to-head -head efficacy study, it's phase two data results. But remarkably, our vaccine technology went up against the gold standard high dose flu vaccines that were used for seniors in the United States and around the world. Our Novavax technology delivered 80% better immune response than the gold standard high dose flu vaccine. You can imagine the number of phone calls that came in after that from excited potential partners. So I think we've got something, we're sitting on something really special. You mentioned, you know, getting a lot of calls from partners that just made me think, you know, during the pandemic, we saw a lot of these really creative partnerships kind of uh, shepherded along by the the government, you know, J&J &J and Merck, for example, that, of course, has not panned out the way folks hoped it would at the time. Novavax didn't have a partner. And yet perhaps it would have made sense for it to have uh, along the way. And, and even now, um, considering the concerns that you highlighted in your annual report um, at, earlier this year. What is the, the company's future? I mean, does it make sense to to work with a bigger company and or consider, you know, being uh, selling the company? You know, what I'll say is we're open to all options. And the stronger we become, the more options we have. As a business executive with 30 plus years experience, the last thing I want is to be in a position of little or no leverage. So when it comes to doing what's right for our company and our shareholders, leverage matters. So what I'm doing right now with our leadership team and our board is building that leverage, putting the muscle on so we can be really strong and we get to decide the pathway forward. We determine if a partnership is right, if we should raise additional capital, if we should do so in a dilutive or non-dilutive way, or use other creative approaches. You can do all kinds of things when you're a public company to bring forward your next stage assets that could be exciting and creative up to and including merger of equals, partnerships, things like that. So by strengthening our balance sheet and executing on our plan this year, we get stronger and stronger. And with that strength comes optionality. So all of those things should be on the table for us. We'll make the right decision when the time comes. We don't have to decide yet, which is good. So sort of on that topic, I was wondering, can you tell us what you can about the situation with Gavi that Novavax cited in its annual report warning about the, the going concern? Gavi had paid Novavax for advanced purchase agreements um, of the COVID vaccine and has said Novavax wouldn't meet its commitment to deliver doses in 2022. What is the company's position and, and what's at stake going forward with that relationship? Obviously, I can't comment in much detail on legal matters of the company as a matter of policy. But what I can say is, yes, that's out in the public domain. We're in arbitration with Gavi right now. Novavax, the company's position is we do not owe that money. We feel we have the merits of the case, and the company stands very strongly by that position to this day. You know, that being said, we share the global mission with Gavi. We want to bring our technology forward to low-income countries, and Gavi is an excellent partner in doing so. 
And we see and foresee a long-term continuous relationship with Gavi to help bring our new technologies forward in the future. And we'd really like to put this behind us as soon as possible. I'm sure Gavi would as well, but that won't be at any cost. And we feel we have the merits of the case. In fact, we're frustrated that we're even in this situation with them because it impedes our ability and momentum to share that global vision. So Novavax was a meme stock uh, before there were meme stocks. Uh, I wonder what your relationship with investors is like these days. And, and you know, what are you doing from a Wall Street perspective to, to help restore credibility? You know, what I do and what I did at, at my prior company as well is I do what I say I'm going to do. So I make sure that we don't overpromise as a company. That's why I was I was proud to be part of the going concern language that Meg alluded to earlier that went into our filings when I first joined the company. It's never fun to put a going concern out. You're telling the entire world you may not have enough cash to make it until the end of the year, that the company's in financial distress. But you know what? That's honest. That's the truth. That's where the company was when I joined it. And so right now, the last thing you'll see me doing is beating my chest, you know, bragging about the company, saying, wow, we're going to you know, beat everyone this fall. What we're doing is saying, look, this is hard. This is difficult to get a vaccine out the door. There's significant execution risk to this business between now and the end of the year. We may not make it. I believe we will. I know we have the right plan. And so far, we've executed exquisitely well against that plan. Everything we said we were going to do so far, we have done. We need to keep doing that between now and the end of the year to get there. And there's a risk in that. And I'm crystal clear with Wall Street about what those risks are, how challenging those risks are. So I'm not looking, and we are not looking for a short-term bump, bump in the stock price at all. It's the last thing we want. We want to say what we're going to do. We prove it with facts. We build a solid foundation of business fundamentals underneath us, like a rock-solid foundation of a home. And once we have that, we can build long-term value from our technology platform and our ongoing sales at the appropriate operating profit ratios and financial metrics. That's where we should be. So that won't come overnight, but it will come, assuming we continue to execute successfully on the plan. It's the right plan. We have the right team. We have the right technology. We need to continue to execute. And if we do that well, and we continue to do it well, we're going to succeed. And eventually we'll see that Wall Street, that investor base migrate to include mall long holders at a greater percentage. Right now we have a lot of retail, right? We have a lot of folks shorting the stock and that's natural. That's part of the Wall Street ecosystem. We appreciate every investor. It matters to our company. It's how we stay alive. It's important. But we see the fabric of that investor base changing over time in tandem with our anticipated success in the future. What's it been like for you coming into this company in terms of your interactions with the employee base? You know, they've been through so much over the last five years longer. I mean, I remember covering Novavax when the RSV vaccine um, trial results were disappointing and the stock just plummeted. And I mean, it's it's heartbreaking when that happens to a biotech company. Uh, and then, of course, just going through this roller coaster of COVID. What what has your relationship been like with the employee base? And what do you sense, you know, sort of coming from them in terms of just how they feel about everything? It's a great question, Megan. You know, often when businesses are assessed, everyone's looking at the balance sheet, the dollars, the performance and those things. And they they don't think about the people. And it's really great that you asked about that. The company doesn't operate on its own. 
It's 2,000 people walking in every day. I'm a visible leader. The way I work with our people, and you can ask Yvonne, you can ask Ali and the rest of the team here, you know, I do something called a jam with John. And that's two or three times a week. I meet with 10 or 12 employees without their supervisors around. We just talk. We share stories about our families. I ask how they're doing. I listen deeply to what they have to say because it gives me a pulse on how people really feel in the company. And by not reacting, if they have a complaint or they want to change something and make it better, I listen and I try to affect that change if we can to help them. When it came to the cuts and things, you know, as a new leader coming in, despite that visibility and walking the halls and sitting with people and connecting with them at a human level across our global campus, those are tough decisions. From day one, Meg, I believe in transparency, humility and transparency and ethics. So I immediately from day one and my first day on the job did a video conference around the globe and I told people I'm going to have to make tough decisions. And that could include changing the way we work and changing our scope and scale. And I won't sugarcoat that for you. And the reception I got from the employees were thank you for being honest and we know we need to change. And we're very upset. We've had those disappointments, Meg. It was heartbreaking to miss on RSV. It was heartbreaking to fall behind on COVID when they were in the lead. But we moved quickly and decisively, and that's behind us now, and everyone is focused on the mission. So your predecessor, Stanley Ark, used to go bowling uh, with Novavax employees. Do, do you have a favorite recreational activity? I'm not a bowler, and we don't really have a lot of time for recreation. In fact, in my <laughs> office, I put a work table there used to be a couch there. I put a work table there and I actually normally don't wear the blazer. I actually roll my sleeves up to signify and symbolize it's time to work and focus. Um, but my activity is really listening and connecting with people at a human level, literally sitting down with employees for an hour and just listening to them, telling stories with each other, laughing, letting them see my human side. Now, often the, the leader is someone in the ivory tower. Bowling's fun. I'm not too good of a bowler. I don't think that would go too well. <laughs> but listening and connecting, being visible and being there and having an open door, I think are critical. Well, John, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor and a pleasure. I look forward to a long-term relationship with each of you. Thank you so much for your, your belief in our company and giving us this platform. And we'll work really hard to not let you down. Thank you so much. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Emanato and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you think Novavax is going to finally get it right. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next time.